Thank you, worship team. What a great reminder. It goes right along with what I'm talking about today. You know, you can trust him. He never fails. He is the anchor of our soul. Hebrews chapter 6, if you have your Bible, as you're turning there in your Bible to Hebrews 6, let me say first of all, welcome. Glad you're here today. Thankful for all of our guests being here today. We're studying through the book of Hebrews, and so I'm glad you're here to join in in this special day. Also, I want to say Happy Father's Day to all dads here. What a difference a dad makes. I'm grateful for the godly father that my uh, dad is. I'm blessed to still have him in my life. I'm thankful for his provision. I'm thankful for his affection and care over the years. I'm thankful for his godly example. I'm thankful for how he has taught me and impacted my life, and I am grateful to him. I would like all the dads in this room to stand for a moment and let's recognize all of you. Please do that. <clears throat> I want to pray for us in just a moment for God to help us continue to be faithful dads. This week, as you heard Brother Bobby say, is Vacation Bible School, and I'm praying this week for it to be one of the most effective and fruitful vacation Bible schools we've ever had. I pray we'll have many children. I pray that we'll see children who are saved grow in the Christ and those who are not come to Christ. I pray we'll see gospel seeds planted in the hearts of children that will one day be harvested. And I pray we'll be able to connect to unchurched families this week as, we, as, as they send their children and grandchildren here to be a part of Vacation Bible School. I'm praying for all of our workers. It, it can be a tiring week, there's no doubt. And know this, all of you who are involved in the day-to-day -day activities of Vacation Bible School, you will have people praying for you. You are doing the Lord's work. You're going to make a difference this week. And I pray God uses you to pour into children, to teach them the things of God, to model a Christ-likeness, to show the love of Christ to them. Uh, your church family is praying for you, and we're very grateful for your willingness to serve. Also, thank you for praying for us as we went to the SBC last week, and I'll give you more details on that. There were some things made, decisions that we made, and, and uh, I've seen in the news media and on Twitter and places where there's been misunderstandings of that, misrepresentations of that, and, and so I want to kind of give us some understanding of what took place, and I'll, I'll do that. Maybe next week uh, we'll work on doing that. And then also I want us to pray for the Wheelers. Miss Jan Wheeler called me yesterday and said that Brother Ralph is now under hospice care. He is um, not responsive. He is in bed uh, full-time now, and uh, she requests the church family pray for them. And if people can come by and sit with her and, and help her during this time, she would greatly appreciate that. She's been a faithful wife caring for him this entire time, and it looks as though that transition's taking place where the Lord is about to take him home, and so we do want to pray for them. So with these things in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then ask him also to prepare our hearts that we might hear the word that he has for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I bow before you this morning, and I thank you that we can trust in you. You never fail. You always keep your promises. 
You are always faithful. You cannot lie. You cannot do wrong. You are perfect in all your ways. You are the perfect Father. Lord, I thank you for the dads in this room. I thank you for my dad. I pray you'll help us, Lord, to be the fathers you want us to be, faithful to you, to be the example we're called to be. Help us, Lord. Dads make such a difference. And I pray you'll use us to make an impact for your glory. Lord, I pray for the wheelers. I pray for Miss Jan to be comforted. I pray for Brother Ralph that your grace will sustain him right now. And when you're ready for him, Lord, you would take him to be with you. I pray, Lord God, for the hope of Jesus Christ to pervade that family right now. And for them to be overwhelmed by your presence and by an understanding of the reality of eternal life. Lord, I pray right now that you will give me the power in all of my inadequacy to preach the Word of God. I've struggled out of my routine this week while traveling and just struggled, Lord God, to study this text and to gain the insight that's needed. Father, I pray for you to clothe me now with ability that you supply. Help me, Lord, to have a clarity of mind and speech. And I pray you'll captivate our attention and take away distractions and speak to us now. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. I'm speaking on this subject today, our anchor of hope. Everyone needs hope. If a person doesn't have hope, then they will begin to lose the will to, to work. They'll begin to lose the will oftentimes to fulfill responsibilities that they have. They will sometimes not do family responsibilities because there's a sense of hopelessness in their lives. They will not do things constructive. They will lose a sense of purpose. Sometimes they will even lose their will to live. Everyone needs hope. It's been said that you can live three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without air, but you cannot live three seconds without hope. On our church sign and on all of our logos, we have this mantra, hope found. The reason that's there is because you can find hope here. You can find hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in this place because we preach the gospel of Jesus. The New Testament word for hope, elpis, is a word that's more than just an attitude. It is a settled certainty. It is a confident expectation based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises of God. The hope we have in Jesus Christ is the only true and real hope. Every other hope that people put their focus on will one day be gone. We have the only lasting hope. To have this hope, one must receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son became human and came to earth, and He lived and He died. 
He died for our sins and He rose again the third day to be our justifier. And anyone who calls on Him to be Lord and Savior will be changed forevermore. If a person is willing to believe that about Jesus and by faith turn away from sin and turn to Jesus as their Lord, He will forgive sin. He will make them righteous. They will be justified before God. That's the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And after our conversion by God's grace, we are called to live out that hope. And that's why our church's mission is to equip people to live out their hope in Jesus Christ and to give the hope of the gospel to others. We live hope and we give hope. The writer of Hebrews, after a heavy warning to the Christians that he's writing to, he begins to write verses as the Spirit of God inspired him that are a comfort to them. They have been severely warned because they are not maturing and they're being called to go on to maturity and there's a warning that they could be sealed in their condition and go through God's discipline and lose reward uh, because of their lack of faithfulness to Him. And that's probably setting heavy on them. And He begins to encourage them to stay faithful uh, in their walk with Him and shares his confidence that he believes they're going to go on to maturity. He's already spent the first part of this letter talking about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and warning them not to drift spiritually and rebuking them for their lack of maturity and then, again, severely warning them. And I imagine after hearing such heavy truth, they may have been a little bit discouraged. They may have allowed some hopelessness to creep in as this was being delivered to them in that church setting and conviction set in and a painful understanding uh, to, uh, set in. And then comes the encouragement. And he encourages them and reminds them of the anchor of hope that they have. So let's read these verses together. Now, when I read these verses, let's remember that what I'm reading here is indeed the Word of God. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, 
where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Remember in chapter 5, he began talking about the great high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus, and then he stopped because he was, he was convinced that they could probably not receive the deeper truth he was about to share with them. So he stopped for a moment on pause and went through talking about their lack of maturity and gave these warnings, and now he gives some encouragement. And then in verse 20, he transitions back to talking about the high priestly role of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's going to pick up um, in fullness in chapter 7. The main idea of this message today is this. In difficult times and circumstances, we have an anchor of the soul to stabilize our faithfulness. I'm going to read that again. In difficult times and circumstances, we have an anchor of the soul to stabilize our faithfulness. It's easy to become discouraged, especially when you feel as though the entire culture has turned against the things of God and there seems to be opposition and attacks and persecution. Now, I hesitate to use that word persecution here because... We don't face persecution like our brothers and sisters do. Elsewhere in the world, they are put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. But here, we are opposed and we are ostracized and we are passed over for promotions. Some lose jobs. Some are marginalized. Some are canceled simply because of their conviction, simply because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And it can become discouraging. And there's a temptation to want to just sort of of slink away from a deeper devotion to Jesus Christ and stay hidden somewhere in a hole and, and not really be out there for Jesus. And that is not what we're called to do. The Word of God encourages us to maintain our faithfulness. And there are two things often that will help us not slide away and hide in some hole somewhere while the cultural storm passes by. One is a warning and the other is encouragement. And both are given here in chapter 6 in the book of Hebrews. Now, the verses we're dealing with today is the encouragement. And there are two things that are clearly said here uh, in this text that we need to grasp today about our hope. The first thing is this. We must be assured of hope. Now, if we're going to have this hope that helps us stay faithful, then we need to be assured of this hope. And in verses 9 through 12, the Word of God helps us with this. How how is it that you and I can be assured of our hope in Jesus Christ? Well, we can go to the promises of God and we can think on those promises and we can meditate on those promises and we can let those things resonate in our heart that encourages us to stay faithful to the Lord because we know what He has promised us. But then also, according to what we find in these verses... Here's something that will also help us be assured of our hope. And that is an absolute, devoted, diligent obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to understand His Word with clarity and it is to live it out no matter what the world is saying and no matter what our flesh desires to do, that we humble ourselves before God and we obey His plain sense, orthodox interpretation of His Word and we live that out every day. That's how we become assured of the hope that we have. Again, sometimes we're tempted to want to slink away when things are difficult. 
But if we do that and we go hide in a hole somewhere, we're going to increase in our level of hopelessness. But if we will stay devoted to Jesus Christ and we will stay surrendered and submitted to Him, then we become more and more aware and assured of our hope. It's because when we surrender to Him and we're resolved to stay obedient to Him, it allows the Spirit of God to fill us. And when we're filled with the Spirit of God, the peace of God pervades us. The joy of the Lord fills our lives. And He empowers us to live in a way that honors Him. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, the Word of God says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That is, you set Him apart as Lord in your hearts. You surrender to Him completely. You, you sell out to Him completely. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. When you're sold out to Jesus Christ, you're not living like everybody else in the world. You're living differently. Your morals are different. Your ethics are different. Your, your actions of life are different. And sometimes people in the world will look at you and they'll say, why do you do that? Because you're kind of suffering the consequences for going against the flow in the culture. But why is it that you live in such a way? It automatically lets those people know that we have a hope that goes beyond this world. And they want to know what it is that we put our hope in. It's not in being popular in the world. It's not in having all the pleasures of the world. It's not in having all the possessions of the world. There's something that goes beyond this world. They want to know what that hope is when you and I are living sold out to Jesus Christ. We're living for that future hope. Now in chapter 6 and verse 9, Although these Christians had received a great warning, the writer of Hebrews was absolutely confident they would not fall away. He was confident they would move on to maturity. And he says so in verse 9. He says, I'm confident. That word confidence is a perfect tense word in the Greek language, which means there was a settled time when he came to this conclusion. And he still has this conclusion. He is still persuaded that they will not fall away, that they will move on toward maturity, and they will be involved in better things, the Scripture says. What is better things? Well, better things, I believe, refers right back up to verse 7. In verse 7, there is described there the life of a fruitful Christian. A Christian life that bears the, the fruits of the Spirit. A, a Christian life that bears the fruits of service and witness to God. Do you know that when people persecute you and I uh, for who we are in Jesus Christ and they oppose us and come against us, do you know that when we continue to bear fruit for the kingdom of God, our obedience to God and the fruit that's bearing in that life can actually benefit those persons, can actually impact those persons can actually make a difference in their lives. He said, I believe better things for you, things that accompany salvation. Now, that, uh, to kind of get a little bit of commentary on that, we've got to go back to chapter 2. We go back to chapter 2 and verse 1, we're warned not to drift. And the Word of God says there in verse 2 that, you know, there was punishment when there was disobedient to the law that was mediated through angels. Then he says in verse 3, um, you know, how much more do we think we're going to experience punishment if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, now he wasn't saying here that they were not saved. What he was saying is you can't neglect living the full redeemed life. 
That is the life that's completely sold out. You're living in such a way that saved people are supposed to live. And then it reminds them of what that life looked like in verse 10. Uh, he said, first, let me just encourage you by letting you know that God has not forgotten uh, how you've lived your life. He, he, he's not unjust to forget. He's seen the work in your life. He's seen the love in your life. And he reminds them of that. And their deeds are recorded in his books. And one day when they stand before him, they'll be rewarded for their obedience to him. Again, let me just remind you of something. Y'all okay? I know it's hot in here, y'all. You're going to have to fight to stay awake today. But listen, maybe some of you today are saying this. And I don't think anybody appreciates what I do. I don't think anybody sees how I serve. I don't think anybody thinks... I'm making a difference. Matter of fact, sometimes I wonder if I really am making a difference. And maybe you're feeling discouraged. Well, I want to tell you this. Your father sees you. He sees you. He knows what you're doing. He knows how he's using your life. And he blesses that and he rewards that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, the Word of God tells us that our labor for Him is not in vain. So let me just encourage you, brother or sister, your labor for Him, your service for Him, you may think nobody else sees it, God sees it, and your labor is not in vain. Verse 10, He sees the work and the love in their lives. Notice those two words. Here's something interesting to me. When you fast forward over to chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, there's an exhortation there for the people of God not to forsake the assembling of themselves together. That is, don't neglect coming to church, what he's saying. Because when you do, you're encouraged. And in verse 23, or 24, excuse me, the Word of God says, here's what we should do as we gather. We should stir each other up or provoke each other to love and good works. The very two things that we see uh, they were involved in and they're being commended for here. Now, let me tell you something else. If you'll notice the way this is worded in verse 10, they were showing love toward His name, God's name. So as they loved each other, they were at, and, and they were doing good things to each other, they were actually doing it to God. It reminds me of what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 25. If you do this to the least of these, you do it unto me. So when you see a brother or sister, they're struggling. And maybe that happened in this church because, see, they're under persecution. They're involved in all kinds of attacks. And maybe some dear brother came along beside another dear brother who was under attack and just encouraged them, prayed for them. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a, a person who had lost their, their, their source of income because they were a Christian. Maybe they had been disinherited by their family because uh, they, they became a believer. Sometimes that would happen in the Jewish world. They would, just, they would reject those who came to Christ. And maybe they were struggling to meet needs and other brothers and sisters were coming along beside them to help them. That's what we're called to do. We're to love one another and meet those needs in each other's Lives And that's, that's love. But when you do that, it's like doing that to God. What does it say when we don't do that? Or we do the opposite of those things. They're told to be diligent. The Word of God says. They're to be diligent till they come to the full assurance. You see that in your Bible? 
It's their diligence to be obedient that bring them to a point of the full assurance of their hope till the end. Verse 11 says. And this is what we're to be. We're to be holy and devoted to the Lord because of our, of our hope. The fact that we know Him and that He's always faithful to His promises and He will bless and reward His people for obedience... As we're obeying Him and walking with Him, there becomes a greater sense of awareness to the great hope that we have. I'll tell you this, the older I get, and I'm starting to get old, <laughs> I'm telling you, but listen, the older I get, the more I recognize how I don't belong here. I, I don't belong. On that. Sometimes, this is the weirdest thing, maybe, I, maybe it's just me. Sometimes, I get this sense, and I, I love where God has me, and I feel like I belong right here. I can go back to my hometown, and I feel like I belong there too. But, I, but there's just something within me sometimes that I just recognize that even though I know I belong here, I don't really belong here. I can go back home, and I, I can say, you know what? I, I know this is where I come from. I know this is where all my people are. But I don't really belong here. You know why that is? Because I begin to recognize the sense of hope that I have in Jesus. There's, there's a kingdom coming. And I'm a citizen of that kingdom. The more I want to walk with the Lord, the more I recognize that. But I don't want to trade eternal blessing and reward for temporary Rewards that come from this world. Many professing Christians today, they're compromising God's design for sexuality so they will be accepted by the world and gain advancement in the eyes of the world, but they lose reward. There are professing Christians that are embracing all sorts of ideologies today and they're embracing all sorts of belief systems and many of them are walking away from living a holy and devoted life because they crave to be accepted by the world. Well, they might be accepted by the world, but they lose reward. The Lord's saying to us, stay faithful to me. You honor me and I'll honor you. I will reward you in my coming kingdom. One day, the fake hope of this world that's embraced will be seen for the sham that it really is. And those who've embraced it will know they are without hope. And they will be hopeless forever because a righteous Lord will assign them to the lake of fire because they have rejected the grace of God. And after the first one million years of hopelessness, it's just the beginning of an eternity of hopelessness. But for us, brothers and sisters, let us be faithful to the very end of our lives because the best is yet to come for us. And I know things sometimes get dark in this world and presses in on us. But can I remind you of something? We're called to be light. We're called to be light here. Verse 12, there's a reminder, do not become sluggish. The same word that was used over in chapter 5, verse 11. There they were dull of hearing. They were not applying the truth, and so they were not able to receive more truth. Here it's talking about they're not to be dull or lazy to action. And they're challenged to be imitators of those who inherit the promises. You see that 
in verse 12. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the Scripture says. You know, we're made to be imitators. We're made to imitate God. We're made to imitate Christ. And as much as we see Him in others, imitate that. Paul said, imitate me, for I also imitate Christ. The two things that those who inherit the promises of God have in their lives is faith and perseverance or patience. Faith, according to Alan, is embracing the unseen as though it were visible and the future as though it were present. Let me just tell you something. I've never seen Jesus. I've never seen the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, in, in just in person, Him before me. But I've seen Him through the eyes of faith. I know what happened to me when He changed my life. There, there is no, you can't turn over a new leaf and have the drastic change that happened in my life. Something supernatural took place in me, and I felt His presence. I, I, I understood the change that took place in my life. I have seen him do things over the years. I have sensed his presence over the years. I know he is real. Thomas said, one of the disciples, he said, I'm not going to believe he's really risen until I see the scars in his hands and the pierced side. And when the Lord appeared to Thomas and he saw those scars, he said, oh, my Lord and my God. And the Lord Jesus said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who having not seen yet believe. That's us. <laughs> That's us. I've not seen the future kingdom. I've read about it in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit has illuminated my understanding to a tiny degree to be able to maybe get a tiny little sliver of what maybe it might be like, but I am still at a loss to understand the magnitude and greatness of the coming kingdom of God. But my resurrected Lord said that He's coming back and He's establishing His kingdom. And I believe that. I believe that. And when you walk by faith, you live in such a way as though you see fully and completely in an absolute realization that coming kingdom. People that's worthy to be imitated are people who have faith like that. People who are long-suffering or patient, who wait the fulfillment of the promises of God because they know this, God cannot lie. He will fulfill His promises. They go through storms and persecutions and hardships and temptations, but they do not compromise. They go on to maturity because they're trusting in the promises of God. If we're going to be assured of our hope, then we must be people who are diligently obedient to the Lord. Secondly, this text tells us something else. And that is that we must lay hold of our hope. We're assured of it, and we're to lay hold of it. Verses 13 through 20 talk about. Now, in these verses, uh, he is giving an example of someone worthy of imitation. And it happens to be Abraham. In verse 14... Genesis chapter 22, verse 16 and 17 is quoted. Now, there are many reasons why that using Abraham was a good idea. Uh, well, first, God's perfect, and what he does is always good. But, but here's some, here's some way, reasons why that is, because he was the father of the Hebrews. He's also 
there's multiple appearances of him in Scripture, which made him one easy to trace in the Scriptures. God's promises were very clear to him. And Abraham was an example of someone who exercised faith and endurance. Now, he didn't always get it right because, see, we as human beings, we don't always get it right. We mess up a lot. We're imperfect. And he had some stumbles along the way. But there was a faith and endurance in the promises of God that's an example to us. When Abraham was 75 years old, he was promised by God that, that from him would descend so many descendants that it would be numbered like the stars in the sky. Him and Sarah would have a child, and from that child would descend all these people, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was 25 years before that promise was fulfilled. Now, there was a little lapse in there, remember, because Sarah decided, let's just, let's just kind of hurry things along, and let's, let's fulfill God's promise for him. So why don't you take my servant as your concubine? And we all know how that turned out. It was, if you read your Bible, that was pretty disastrous. It wasn't good. But after 25 years, Isaac, the promised one, came along. Now, in Genesis chapter 22, there's something else took place. After Abraham had received this promise, and it would be from this child that God would fulfill all the promises that he had given to Abraham, he told Abraham one day to go and offer his son as a burnt offering. Abraham got up the next morning, chopped some wood, packed a donkey, took two of his servants and his son Isaac along with him, and they headed for Moriah. That's where he told them to go, the land of Moriah. So they got near there after three days, and they saw the mount in the distance, and so they told his servants to stay here. And he said, the lad and I will go on, and we'll come back to you. A statement of faith. Along the way, Isaac had some questions. Now, you can imagine this because here they are going to offer a burnt offering and there's no lamb. So they're walking along and I'm, you know, Isaac's going, hmm. Hey, Dad. Yes, son, here I am. Where's the lamb? Another statement of faith. God will provide. Amen. So they get to... The mount, the area in which he is to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, put him on the wood to sacrifice him. Now, <clears throat> Isaac is no five-year-old at this time. Scholars believe he's on up. You know, he's a pretty good-sized lad, so he, you know, he might not be able to, you know, he can't manhandle him up on top of that thing. So Isaac has to also exercise some faith and, and lay up there also. And Abraham gets the knife up to plunge into Isaac, because the writer of Hebrews says over in chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, that Abraham was so convinced of God fulfilling his promises through Isaac that he believed that God could even raise him from the dead. And the angel of the Lord said, Don't harm the lad. You have demonstrated that you put no one before me. And God doubled down on his promises to Abraham. Not that he needed to, because his word's always true. Now with us, not so much. You know why we have to take an oath when we go to court? Because human testimony is a little wishy-washy. You know, we don't always fulfill the promises we make. We fail. We 
we might not be reliable with testimony sometimes. So we take an oath because it, it stresses the seriousness of what is being done there. And there are consequences if you do not give the proper testimony. But with God, when He makes a promise, He can't lie. His promise will be fulfilled. You can count on it with absoluteness. And God even swore by Himself in the context of Genesis 22. Again, not that He needed to, but He did it to fuel the faith of Abraham. I'm doubling down on the promises that are coming to you. And it provided encouragement. That's what that word consolation means in the New King James Version. It means encouragement. To those who fled for refuge, as verse 18 says. That means they fled sin and the world for refuge in God, in Christ. Now, he goes on to talk about here that we're to lay hold of this hope. That hope here is the future fulfillment of the kingdom of God and, and to be in the presence of the Lord and, and to experience Him in His fullness, to be there with Him, to be there with others, people of faith that's gone on before us, even some of the very ones who are in this church and served with us for years and our own family members. As we gather with the, uh, the people of God and the kingdom of God, we'll be in a place where there's no more suffering, there's no more immorality, there's no more slander, no more attacks, no more persecution. All evil, all those who stood and rejected the grace of God and stood against the people of God are assigned to the lake of fire and evil is completely eradicated and we live in a perfect kingdom forever and ever and the faithful people of God are rewarded by the glorious God of the universe. And we will worship Him and serve Him and magnify Him forever. Perfect harmony. That hope, listen, is the anchor of our soul. It's the anchor of our soul. The, the Lord Jesus Christ is that ultimate hope which the Bible says here entered behind the veil. That speaks of the very presence of God. Offered himself as a sacrifice for us so that we could enter that veil. That is, we could enter the very presence of God. The hope we have in Jesus Christ is the anchor of our soul. Did you know that an anchor was an early Christian symbol? In the catacombs of Rome, there are anchors etched on the tombs of Christians there. Based on what we're reading here, can you imagine in the severe persecutions of early times of the Christian, of the church growing and developing, and maybe when Christians are being impaled on stakes and set afire to be torches to light gardens? or being thrown into arenas where lions come in and rip them to shreds, there was an anchor. That anchor was to remind them that their hope was not on the comfort of this world or the escaping of death, but that anchor was to remind them that their souls are anchored in the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, so they are not blown away by the, the uh, circumstances of life, by the winds of doctrine, the, the false doctrines that blow, but they stay faithful and they stay tethered to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a ship with no anchor uh, will be tossed everywhere, be carried away by storms. In the, in the Mediterranean region, 
The Mediterranean Sea, it's said, is very sandy on the bottom, and sometimes it's hard to find a place for an anchor to bite. It'll just drag along. So sometimes when a ship would go into, going to go into harbor, they couldn't get in because the sea was too rough. So what they did is that they would send a boat in there with the anchor, drop the anchor, bring the line back to the ship, tether the ship to it so that it would stay there, stable until the sea settled, and then it could go on into the harbor. Kind of reminds me of the fact that our hope is behind the veil and we're anchored to Him. And one day, we're going to get in the harbor. Right now, we stand the storms because we're tethered to Him. The great theologian and nautical sailor, Mac Woods, has shared some things with me about the Navy life that I didn't know. And, and Brother Mac says that when you're in the Navy, if you, if your, your ship, when you want to anchor it, sometimes you'll lower that anchor and you'll drag that thing along for a, while, for a while. He said one time they were dragging it for six miles before it finally caught on to a rock and stabilized them. And they said what they'd do is they'd point the ship right into the storm and, and they'd anchor off so the storm would blow right by them. See, if you wasn't anchored off, that storm would just carry you right along with it the whole time and you're just in it. But if you're anchored off, the storm passes you by. That'll preach, won't it? So here's you and I. We are anchored to Jesus behind the veil. And the storms of this life blow, but they're going to blow past us. We're anchored off to Jesus. And one day, He's going to take us to be in His presence. We're going to face turmoils and trials and storms and attacks and temptations and oppositions in this world. Storms that could potentially drive us away from the Lord or cause us to drift. But listen, what we've got to be is anchored in our hope. And we're not carried away by these storms. There's a hymn that says this. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Sing it with me. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We're to be anchored to the rock. One day, we're going to fully realize our rest. But until then, brothers and sisters, let's stay anchored to our hope. Let's trust in Him. Maybe today you're being blown about by the storms of this life. You're under opposition or uh, the attacks of the enemy are coming against you. The temptations of the enemy are coming against you. And the culture pressuring you to give in to its demands. What I would say to you today is, brother and sister, stay faithful to the Lord. Stay anchored to the hope of Jesus Christ. As we close this service and our invitation time comes, I'd invite you to come and pray today. 
Just pray at this altar, asking the Lord to help you stay tethered to Him. Maybe you want to come pray together. Maybe you want to come pray with a brother or sister who is struggling in a storm uh, even today. And maybe you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Right now, you're tossed about by every storm and every wind of this world. You go this way for a while and that way for a while. And nothing ever satisfies you. You need to be anchored to the only hope there is. And that's Jesus. And if you believe that He is the Son of the living God, He became human and came to earth, and He lived and He died for the sins of the world, and He rose again, and you're willing today to admit that you're a sinner separated from Him, but today what you want to do is you want forgiveness in Him. And you're willing to turn from your sin and surrender your life to Him to be your Lord and Savior. He will take your sin away and declare you, make you righteous before God. You can come here this morning and say to me, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. We'll put you with someone to pray about this. However God is leading, let's surrender to Him today. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for these words of hope this morning. I thank you that our anchor holds. No matter how bad the storm is, no matter how difficult the tribulation, our anchor holds. And I pray we live lives that are tethered to the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in Him. Lord, You always fulfill Your promises. And one day, all of Your promises will be fulfilled before us. And Lord, help us to stay faithful right now that we might win the lost, that we might encourage one another, that we might represent You well, that we might glorify You with every bit of our lives, Lord. And so I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please.